Hi, and welcome to the Week in Women. I'm your host, Jill Filipovich. As a reminder, paid subscribers to jill.substack.com get the Week in Women early, delivered to your inbox every Friday. So if you want to listen before everyone else, head to jill.substack.com to sign up. The Week in Women is a rundown of the week's most important international gender and women's rights stories, followed by a deeper dive into a single issue. This week, you'll hear about a huge abortion rights victory in Kansas, upcoming abortion votes in a smattering of other states, and how women's rights in the U.S. are being literally rolled back to a time before we could vote. All of that will be followed by an interview with Satya Doyle-Bayak, a trauma-informed licensed psychotherapist, director of the Salome Institute for Jungian Studies, and the author of the really important new book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. But first, the headlines. First, some good news. Voters in Kansas decisively defeated a referendum that would have opened the door for broad abortion restrictions in the state. It was supposed to be a close vote, Instead, it was a landslide in favor of abortion rights and against the government further inserting itself into people's intimate lives. 59% of voters voted against the initiative to restrict abortion in a state that has long been a Republican stronghold and that went for Donald Trump by some 15 points. What's clear from voting patterns in Kansas and in other states that have put abortion laws to the public is that abortion rights while opposed by white conservative evangelicals, are generally supported by just about everyone else. And it's not just a liberal versus conservative divide. Many Republican voters also don't want the state criminalizing abortion, tossing doctors in jail, and telling women what to do with their bodies. This vote should chasten the anti-abortion movement, which is pushing through all kinds of extreme and broadly unpopular legislation but it should also be a learning moment for Democrats. Abortion is a winning issue, and in the midterms, they should run on it. In November, Californians will vote on their own abortion rights measure, this one to enshrine the rights to abortion and contraception into the state constitution. If the measure called Proposition 1 wins, California will be the first state in the nation with abortion and contraception written into its constitution. Other states are also voting on abortion rights this November. In Kentucky, voters will cast their ballots on a proposed constitutional amendment saying that the state constitution's privacy protections do not cover abortion. In Vermont, voters will weigh in on whether to add a quote, personal right to reproductive autonomy to their state constitution. And in Michigan, advocates are trying to add a proposition to the ballot that would secure the rights to abortion and contraception in the state. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed a lawsuit over Idaho's near-total ban on abortion. Idaho passed a law banning all abortions, except in cases where a pregnant woman's life is threatened or if she is a victim of rape or incest. The law is supposed to go into effect on August 25th. The Department of Justice, though, says that the Idaho law conflicts with federal law, specifically a federal law saying that any hospital that receives Medicare dollars must treat any patient who has a life or health-threatening condition. 
The Idaho law offers no exceptions for a pregnant woman who needs an abortion to preserve her health. Its life exception is narrow enough that doctors in Idaho may experience what is already happening in many states that ban abortion. Doctors may not be confident that they can offer a full range of care, including abortion, if a woman's life is at risk, and may instead opt for a less effective or riskier course of treatment to make sure that they are within the bounds of these hyper-restrictive anti-abortion laws. Attorney General Merrick Garland is saying, you can't do that if you receive Medicare money. You can't refuse the treatment necessary to preserve a patient's health or save their life. And since the law in Idaho mandates that doctors do just that, the Justice Department says it's invalid. In Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has suspended Tampa's top prosecutor, Andrew Warren, after Warren said that he would not use his office to hunt down and prosecute doctors, people who have abortions, and providers who offer care to transgender patients. DeSantis accused Warren of refusing to go after criminals and, in a shocking and authoritarian move, suspended him. Warren, the prosecutor, is an elected official, and prosecutors traditionally have wide discretion over which cases they take and which they don't. It's not unusual for prosecutors to prioritize certain cases and crimes above others. And prosecutors have limited resources. They can't investigate and prosecute every single crime committed in a given jurisdiction. And that's why Warren signed on to a letter saying he wasn't going to use his office's limited resources to prosecute those who provide, seek, or support abortions. And I would imagine that most of the voters in Tampa would agree that this is the right call and, and would prefer that prosecutors go after, let's say, dangerous, violent criminals or greedy white-collar criminals over mothers of scared teenage girls or ER doctors treating miscarriage patients. But Ron DeSantis doesn't agree. And he's using all of the power of his office to dictatorially strip the democratically elected prosecutor, Andrew Warren, of his role. Across the country, states are reimposing abortion laws that are more than a century old. Laws that were passed and put into place before women could even vote. Julian Brockell reports for the Washington Post that West Virginia, for example, has an anti-abortion law on the books from 1848, before West Virginia was even a state. Wisconsin's abortion law, which makes abortion a felony, dates back to that same year. Arizona's law criminalizing abortion dates back to 1901, and Michigan's law dates back to 1931, when women in that state were not permitted to have their own bank accounts. It's quite telling that these laws passed at a time when women were simply not equal citizens in the United States and were formally barred from full political and economic participation are what abortion opponents are now turning to as they attempt to roll women's rights back yet again. Joe Biden signed an executive order on Wednesday that, while quite vague, tells the Department of Health and Human Services to, quote, consider actions, unquote, to preserve abortion rights and to protect women who have to travel across state lines for the procedure. Biden also directed the health secretary to study the issue and gather more data, something the health secretary was already reportedly doing. One question is whether Medicaid could potentially pay for low-income women in need of abortions 
to travel to more liberal states for the procedure. In a case widely understood to be politically motivated, WNBA star Brittany Griner was sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony for having trace amounts of cannabis vaping oil in her luggage. Her lawyers say they will appeal the decision, and the U.S. government is still trying to arrange for a prisoner exchange to secure her freedom. The United Nations Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction released a report on Monday detailing the country's sharp decline and ongoing humanitarian crises, including major radical walkbacks of women's rights. Nearly 19 million Afghans are predicted to experience potentially life-threatening hunger, while 6 million could experience near-famine conditions. And the inspection also emphasizes the dire situation for Afghan women and girls, as Taliban policies, quote, make women effectively invisible. Many girls are unable to go to school and girls' schools remain shuttered. Child marriage is on the rise. Women are not permitted to travel more than short distances without male chaperones. What was once the women's ministry has been transformed back into the Ministry for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. It has told women that they must cover their entire bodies and faces in public and that it would be best if they simply did not leave their homes. And now I'm joined by my friend Satya Doyle-Bayak, a trauma-informed licensed psychotherapist, a director of the Salome Institute for Jungian Studies, and the author of the new book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. Welcome, Satya. Hi, Jill. I'm so honored to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. So we're here to talk about your book on quarter life, which I have read. I have two copies of it and I loved it. I think it's such an incredible and important project. Before we jump in, can you just tell listeners a little bit about your background and who you are? Sure. So I am a psychotherapist in private practice, and I'm also a teacher. I have a little institute online called the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies. My background is primarily in Jungian psychology with a feminist social justice lens. I'm also a writer, and I wrote this book, Quarter Life, over the last many years, as you know, Jill. And I'm glad to have it finally in the world. I am so glad it's in the world. So tell us about the book. What was the genesis of it? Why write this book right now? I've been writing this book for a long time. The genesis of it was in my early 20s. And actually, Jill, there's a lot of ways that I feel like the genesis of this book, as I was reading your first book, the introduction and certain elements of it feel like there were a lot of us in our 20s who were raised on hope and ambition, suddenly feeling like, wait, this is it? This is all? Isn't there something more to life? Isn't there something more that I should be striving for? It's not just getting degrees and getting good fancy jobs, whatever. So the genesis of the book is really in my own angst and confusion and depression in my 20s. I ended up going to graduate school. I wrote my master's thesis on quite similar stuff. And so in a way, I've been working on this book for 20 some years, but I became a clinician and really working with people in their 20s and early 30s had had no books that felt really genuinely valuable to me to hand to my clients. So it just kept building this need to write this book. What is a quarter life crisis? Yeah. 
Well, so the term quarter life crisis was was very popular when I was in my 20s. John Mayer wrote a song called Quarter Life Crisis. There was a book that was titled Quarter Life Crisis that was all about these college graduates not understanding what the ladder was that they had just climbed and, and why they were so dissatisfied at the top of that ladder. So what I'm trying to do is talk about quarter life beyond the crisis and trying to really draw attention to this stage of life that has not had much, much, much honest inquiry beyond get your shit together, pull yourself up, figure it out. So I got sick of that narrative of that, what I call now a stability narrative, a narrative that's really focused on just solidifying your your wealth, your strength, your your accolades in the external world, which in a crumbling planet, in a planet struggling with myriad issues, it's just not satisfying. And so the crisis that happens in this time of life for many people can go on for years and years and years. There's epidemic anxiety and depression in this stage of life. And for the most part, it's being treated medically or or very individually versus really acknowledging that there are reasons people are suffering externally, globally, and that there might be more soulful solutions. And what are some of those reasons that are pitching so many young people into, into crisis, into depression, into anxiety, but also into this more existential place of asking, what the heck am I doing? Why yeah. am I here? How is it that everything I've worked for my entire life somehow doesn't feel as satisfying as I was promised? The ladders that we are sending young people to climb have not kept up with the changing world. So climate change is this endless, overwhelming disaster that all young people are growing up with, whether the adults or the older adults in their lives really get it. Guns in schools, mass shootings, institutional racism and the sudden wiping away of reproductive rights. All of these issues are things that people in this stage of life are directly encountering and experiencing and impacted by. Whether or not, again, older people are feeling it in the same way, younger people are feeling it every single day in their personal lived lives. And meanwhile, the story that they're being told is just get good grades in high school, finish fifth grade, finish seventh grade, and then you're in high school and then you go to college and finish college. And, and then everyone claps and applauds and you have all these people, whether they finished college or not, staring out into the void of the world and wondering, but what was all that for? Why did I just spend that many years in academia without really questioning what is this to be alive on this planet in this moment in history? What is this to be alive when there are school shootings every single day, when my reproductive rights aren't guaranteed, when my body, my gender identity isn't being respected? So we can talk about medical issues in this time of life, anxiety, depression, et cetera, but really the existential issues are massive and, and very few people are taking that seriously or talking about that. One thing you bring up in the book that I found quite resonant is that one thing that makes this era different is that while young people and, and all people through all eras of human history have dealt with crisis and threats and fears and questions about what is my meaning, what is my purpose, in this particular era, we have fewer mechanisms, fewer institutions through which to filter those questions. 
we are less religious. We are in many ways less connected to our communities. Many of us just have kind of simply poverty of places and people yeah. with to sure. discuss these big questions. And so I'm wondering what, what you suggest as a solution, other than going to therapy and yay therapy, everyone should go. Aside from the kind of government policy aid to people to give them what they need materially, how can we put better mechanisms in place for people to find the kind of intellectual, social, spiritual homes that seem to be so lacking? It's a great question because I know when we were coming of age, when I was being raised through academia, every year it seemed like we had less access to art and less access to the environment. Things like recess and art classes or music classes were being cut consistently. And meanwhile, in the larger world, religion and not just people going to church or not, but religion as a source of, of genuine emotional and soulful solace versus dogma and politics. We need spaces for our souls and for our bodies to relax into that are more about imagination, soul, curiosity, questioning, poetry, music. And I say this all as a person who has very few artistic skills or real relationship to music. These are not things that I'm good at. But I know that places that host what we would call the non-rational ways of being have been essentially eradicated from our society. I love thinking and reading and studying and all this. I love this stuff. But without a balance in my life of the non-rational, what I would then call the soulful, we all start to go crazy, especially in a world that is so painful so frequently, so often. So there are a hundred thousand policies that I would love to see enacted that would better support people in this time of life, all of us to thrive versus just feel like we're kind of up against the police or the institutions and scared coming of age. But also anything that supports, let's call it the right brain or the body or the soul to find some solace and peace versus just figuring everything out with our frontal lobes and our shoulders hunched and our bodies aching. All of that stuff that helps to open up the quote unquote non-rational is tremendously valuable. One definitional aspect of being in quarter life is being in your prime reproductive years. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how that reproductive capacity shapes what it means to be a quarter lifer. And essentially, what's different about being someone in quarter life when it comes to parenthood, potential parenthood, making the choice to avoid parenthood? Oh, it's such an important question. And there's so many things that come to mind. I'll start by saying that that I am a woman who throughout my quarter life, I've, I've just entered midlife, throughout my quarter life, knew that I did not want to become a mother. And that certainty really ruled all sorts of elements of my dating life and social life and love life because it was an absolute certainty that wasn't something I wanted to have as a part of my identity and future. And I know that had I been born into another era, let's say my grandmother's era, I'm not sure that I would have survived that emotionally because I was so clear I didn't want to be a mother. And the certainty of my gender role at a previous time in history, it would have been fixed. And I would have almost certainly been sent onto that path. 
If I'd been born later, if I were 20 and witnessing the erasure of my reproductive rights in my country, I don't know what would have happened for me with that weight of grief on my body because it was already intense and there were federal protections for abortion rights for me at the time. So the ways that people's bodies and gender roles are regulated or stipulated in quarter life is, I would argue, more extreme than any other time of life. Whether it's people sorting through trans identity or gender identity or being female or, or being male and having impregnated a partner. The pressure of these questions and these roles is so intense in this time of life. And I think there's real value in drawing our attention more to this as a stage of life and to fertility issues and gender roles in this stage of life to help us even talk about it more cohesively among genders, because it really is something that affects everybody. It also strikes me that like other markers of adulthood, getting married, owning a house, having a child also looks quite different today than it did 30, 40, 50, certainly 100 years ago. That in previous eras, and still in many communities around the world, having a child is essentially a woman's transition into adult life. When people in our generation, and certainly Gen Zers as well, are more likely to live with their parents, less likely to own a home, having children later than pretty much any people at any point throughout human history. Fewer men and women having children than at any point throughout all of human history. Getting married later or not getting married at all. When these traditional markers of the transition into adulthood begin to fall away, either by choice or because they don't feel achievable. A, what happens? How is that shaping the psychology of quarter lifers? And B, how can we think about these questions in more creative ways? What would it look like to shift our definition of adulthood? What would be a healthier way to approach it? Brilliant. Beautiful questions because it really, it opens up the heart of what my book is about. You talk about women's pregnancies and motherhood and even women's first periods as being real markers of adulthood for females. Back in the day, in many, many cultures, there were rites of passage, rites of initiation for young people. And very often it was very clearly split as far as we understand it between the genders at the time. And boys were sent off to make their way as hunters or warriors. And it was just understood that girls would become women through pregnancy. But since that more cultural initiation, it has really been fixated on pregnancy and stability. And so this term stability is something that I talk about a lot in the book. I talk about stability and meaning. And the fact that for a very long time in Western culture, we've really seen adulthood as synonymous with stability. And what I'm trying to offer is that we don't need to wait until the midlife crisis to start looking inward and search for meaning. And then in fact, the majority of quarter lifers today aren't doing that because there's too much confusion and chaos and too few clear structures of how to become a stable adult, whether it's not having children until much later or not joining your father's firm and continuing on in that career for 20 years, 30 years, whatever. So if we can consider the fact that all of independent life is about a search for meaning as well as a search for stability, we open up what adulthood can be and what adulthood can look like so that it doesn't need to just be about have a family, a mortgage and a job. 
because that, it turns out, hasn't actually been satisfying for huge numbers of adults forever. I love that frame in your book of there's the stability finders and the stability yeah. seekers. And then there's the people that are much more on the seeking meaning side and that going too far in either direction can make one feel imbalanced. And I think of this as like there's the order Muppets and the chaos Muppets. I do really love the framing of the order, the order Muppets and the chaos Muppets, because it is very much wedded to the fact that we all, the universe needs some kind of balance of order and chaos or in the book, what I call stability and meaning, right? And that there are stability types and meaning types. I'm very clear and I hope people really read this, that I see this on a continuum, on a spectrum. I don't really think there are two clear fundamental types that fit in their boxes and never leave, right? But that generally, because quarter life, what we have tended to call young adulthood or early adulthood, has been so tightly wedded to the goals of stability, there's essentially historically been folks who succeed and folks who fail. And the succeeders are people that we applaud and they've done everything right. And the failures everyone worries about and tears their hair out over and goes to see clinicians for and whatnot. The truth is much more interesting. And that is what I'm trying to offer is that there is this spectrum of quarter lifers. There are people who are from the get-go more existential and more people who are questioning life's purpose and what are we doing here. And we could say they're more the artists or creatives. They're more the philosophers. And I call them the meaning types. And there's this other rough group of folks that I call the stability types that are just whether they're questioning or not, they're better at putting on a solid face that suggests that they're not really worrying that much about things. They're going to get the degrees. They're going to engage with the standard structures of adulthood and move forward towards midlife, at which point they may then start questioning, wait, what is this all about? Who am I? How does one find a better balance between stability and meaning, no matter what side of that spectrum one falls on? It's a long journey, right? I'm trying to offer a window into self-development in a pretty broad way, but I'm trying to assert that th there is incredible value in looking inward and asking the big questions and having a search for meaning in quarter life. Because from my experience, the literature really doesn't talk about that. There's such a heavy emphasis on stability and getting your shit together and figuring it out that, that I wanted to start by naming the stage of life and allowing an emphasis on meaning to be interwoven. The journey to what I call the search for self or the journey toward wholeness is a journey of self-development and questioning both of the world and of oneself. So there's not a quick fix or an easy answer, but it's about really having a sense that one's external life is aligned with one's internal life as much as possible. And that if there's a feeling that they're extremely unaligned, or misaligned, that doesn't mean something's wrong with you medically. It means there's some big questions that you're wanting to ask. In the book, I talk about four pillars of growth. I call them four pillars versus four stages or something because I really want to honor them as continuous work versus boxes to check. And I talk about the work to separate. This is separating from our pasts, the belief systems of our parents, and really working to understand ourselves as individuals. The second pillar is to listen, which is more of this reflective, receptive work of really witnessing ourselves, our bodies, the way we feel in the world. The third pillar is to build, 
this work of willpower and active engagement discipline and that really determined work that's needed to actually create the lives that we want, which I think is more of what's been sold to quarter lifers and less pairing that with the work of inquiry and receptivity. The fourth pillar is to integrate. And so this is really the question you're asking. I wish there was a clearer, simpler answer to it, but it's working to bring these two sides together of how do we have lives that feel both stable and safe and secure and meaningful and purposeful and valuable to those around us that we also deeply love. This is a politics podcast and I'm a politics person. I know that you also think quite deeply about not just how individuals in our own little islands can self-improve in the context of a shitty and broken world, but also what we owe each other and how we can start to create the kind of shifts in a culture, a society, in politics and policy that would allow the structures for people to go on this journey that, that you're laying out. So zooming out a little bit from personal individualized work, what do you see as the work for the broader polity? What can all of us do to better support folks in quarter life asking these questions? And what are the political and policy components here? I love this question and I'm grateful for you bringing it up. Self-development work does not happen in a vacuum when anyone who suggests that it does is checked out. There are a thousand ways that, that on a policy level and a social level, a cultural level, we could be inviting citizens into adulthood, inviting quarter-life citizens into the world with so much more of a warm welcome and genuine support versus an enormous amount of eye rolling, clickbait articles, making fun of them and incredibly bad policies that make the entry into adulthood and all of the rest of adulthood, frankly, painful and scary. So when you enter quarter life, you are immediately at age 18, an adult legally, which means you can go to jail for the rest of your life if you commit a felony. It means you, as a male, have to sign up for the draft and, and you're able to buy an AK-47, et cetera, but you can't buy alcohol. There's this incredible mishmash of laws that are really focused primarily on punitive issues, on how you can be prosecuted, and much less on how you can be a citizen and a productive member of society. Wages are obscenely low for people in this stage of life, primarily because these are people who generally are engaging in entry-level work or internships that still somehow remain largely unpaid. Of course, there's the issue of reproductive rights. If people want to feel free to actually make the choices they need to make for their lives, whether in cases of rape or incest or in cases of accidental pregnancy, we need people in this stage of life to have the freedom to make choices for their own lives. Same is true for black and brown communities that are obsessively policed. People in this time of life, young men, African-American men in this time of life are thrown in jail at disproportionate numbers. And the support for African-American men, young women, the four officers in Breonna Taylor's murder were just arrested this morning. She was 26 years old when she was killed in her bed. So the communities that are being obsessively policed so many quarter lifers in these communities are the ones that are under attack. You know, as they're trying to build their independent lives, whether it's school or career, the pressures on quarter lifers in, in community after community are so intense 
I talk about this in the conclusion, but it can be a torture chamber for some, let alone an obstacle course. Too many barriers exist in our societies for people in this time of life and not enough invitations. College should be free. Therapy should be free. <laughs> Living wages should exist. Incarceration should be a last resort versus first line of defense. I'll pause there. I could go on. Who should read this book? Well, everyone should read this book. I was told over and over that young people don't read. People in their 20s don't read. They don't buy books. I am determined to prove that untrue. I really wrote this book primarily for people in their 20s and 30s because I wanted some kind of soulful, socially conscious book available to people in this time of life that didn't just keep emphasizing the need to figure it out. But I've also been hearing from a lot of grandparents and parents and people in very different stages of life who are saying that it gave them an opportunity to reflect on their younger years and gave them a lens to really understand their own journey in that time of life and to understand their children and grandchildren going through it and, and to think about how to give them different kinds of space or how to ask different kinds of, kinds of questions how to give them different support. So every author I think says anyone should read this book, everyone should read this book, but I, I'm hoping to be able to start and support different kinds of conversations than we're having. I certainly saw myself in this book, even though I've just aged out of quarter life, hitting the very end of my thirties. But I found myself so deeply resonating with so much of what you wrote and so many of the struggles that your characters were going through. And also recognizing my friends and my family members in those characters. It felt like such an accurate and rich picture. Thank you so much for being on. It's always so interesting to talk to you. I hope everybody buys your book. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's it for The Week in Women. As always, if you want to hear The Week in Women as soon as it comes out, sign up for a paid subscription at jill.substack.com. And you'll get this podcast right to your inbox every Friday. If you're enjoying the podcast, it really helps if you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>